Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 38. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Just so we don't get into a rut, we have some surprises in store for you on this podcast. So, stay tuned. Let's start with a quiz. Who said, a good novel tells us the truth about its hero, but a bad novel tells us the truth about its author? Was that G.K. Chesterton, Mark Twain, or John Grisham? Be thinking about it. We'll give you the answer at the end. Last time we met, Steve finished Chapter 7 of my first novel in the Kate Nielsen series, Winds of Wyoming. And today, I'll read a portion of Chapter 8. Jerry Ramsey lay motionless on the jail cell bunk, his back to the bars. His head throbbed like he'd been stomped by a buffalo. Hearing footsteps stop at his cell, he snarled through puffy lips. What are you staring at, Bozo Brain? I'm looking at an ugly drunk with an even uglier attitude. What would a backwoods hick like you know about a big word like attitude? Ramsey kicked the wall and swore when his bare toes slammed into a cement block. Okay, wise guy, here's the deal. The officer's voice was hard. You cooperate, we feed you. Keep up the smart mouthing, you'll go hungry. I've worked in corrections. You can't deny me food. Try me. Ramsey rolled over. The sudden movement hurt, especially his face. He groaned, fingering a swollen cheek. Had a piece of bone chipped off? His knuckles felt stiff and raw. He couldn't see out of his left eye. And his tongue tasted like liverwurst. Then there was his big toe, which was about to burst. I'm going to talk to the chief. The officer laughed. Looks like old Henry tossed you and then tromped on your head, he snorted. Meanest bowl on the rodeo circuit, you wouldn't last half a second. I demand you take me to the chief. Ramsey slammed his fist into the thin mattress, ignoring the pain. Now. Demand is not a word we respond to around here. Though the officer's voice carried no animosity, his cocksure attitude cut to the core of Ramsey's self-control. The first chance he had, he'd squeeze the jerk's scrawny neck until he gave him the keys. Neither is Bozo Brain. Try saying please, and you might get lunch. The man started to walk away, but stopped. You have a visitor. A visitor? He didn't know anyone in town. Maybe Nielsen changed her mind, knowing it would cost her if she didn't. He struggled upright. You have a visitor's room? Or does she come in here? Down the hall, the officer lifted keys from his belt, slid one into the lock. She moves fast. Ramsey started to stand, but the pounding in his head knocked him back down. He cursed and tried again, this time slower. 
What do you mean, fast? The officer opened the cell door. Considering you pulled into town yesterday, he motioned for Ramsey to step into the hallway. To your right. Ramsey reached into the solitary pocket of his orange jumpsuit, but his comb wasn't there. He spit into his palm and rubbed saliva across his disheveled brill cream helmet. Give it up, man. She's not worth the primping. Ramsey ignored him. They halted before a gray metal door, and the officer inserted a key. Ramsey heard a loud click as the door unlocked. They stepped inside. The overly bright but bare bathroom-sized room reeked of sweat and frustrated testosterone. The officer pointed at a stool positioned before a small window. Five minutes. The door closed behind Ramsey with a solid steel thump. Then another click of the lock. Irritated to be on the wrong side of the visitor window, he slumped onto the low stool and hooked his heels on the rungs to avoid the cold concrete floor. He picked up the phone. A figure on the opposite side of the glass lifted the other handset. Ramsey squinted, trying with his good eye to see past his bruised reflection. It was a woman, all right, but she was a redhead from the bar, not Nielsen. What did she want? He smoothed his hair again. She obviously found him attractive. Most women did. He put the receiver to his ear. She winked. You can sure chug him down, big boy. I tried to convince the chief to let you sleep it off at my house, but Rhodes is a prude. She ran her tongue across the tips of her perfectly aligned, brilliantly white teeth. Yeah, he had a vague memory of white teeth and lipstick. They drank a few beers and talked about. About what? He couldn't say. You're quite the slugger, Jerry. He grinned with one side of his bruised mouth and sat a bit taller. He'd always had a killer left hook. He just wished he could recall using it. She arched an eyebrow. Do you remember me? Yeah, sure. She rested her forearms on the counter and carefully enunciated. My name is Tara. She paused. Hughes. She leaned forward, straining the halter top and revealing three small butterfly tattoos that fluttered with each orchestrated breath. I just ran into your woman, don't know what you see in her, but she's apparently been hired as a secretary at the Whispering Pines Ranch. He swore under his breath and nibbled at a fingernail. She knew about Nielsen. How much had he told her? She tilted her head. I think you and I might have a mutual goal, Mr. Ramsey. He didn't speak, didn't blink, just chewed at the fingernail. A flicker of fear, maybe disgust, he couldn't tell, crossed her face. She squirmed, then pouted. If you're not interested, I can leave. Out with it, he slapped the shelf. What's this mutual goal of yours? She flinched. Ours, Jerry, our goal. She caressed the glass with her long, orange fingernails. He glanced at the clock. Two minutes. She pressed the phone to her lips. We both want your friend off the Whispering Pines payroll. Her voice was low. You have your reasons. I have mine. His hand twitched. Must have said too much. Keep talking. She sat back, eyebrows raised in victory. I'm in the phone book. Under Hughes. Call me when you get out of the slammer. She dropped the phone onto the counter. The clatter blasted his eardrum. 
He threw the handset at the window and sprang to his feet, spewing expertise. Tara stood and strutted to the door, butterflies bobbing with the swing of her bare shoulders. Here's the short story that put Mark Twain on the map, not just in this country, but around the world. Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. In compliance with a request of a friend of mine who wrote me from the East, I called on good-natured, garrulous old Simon Wheeler and inquired after my friend's friend, Leonidas W. Smiley, as requested to do, and I hereunto append the result. I have a lurking suspicion that Leonidas W. Smiley is a myth, and that my friend never knew such a personage, and that he only conjectured that if I asked old Wheeler about him, it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me to death with some exasperating reminiscence of him, as long and as tedious as it should be useless to me. If that was the design, it succeeded. I found Simon Wheeler dozing comfortably by the barroom stove of the dilapidated tavern in the decaying mining camp of angels. And I noticed that he was fat and bald-headed and had an expression of winning gentleness and simplicity upon his tranquil countenance. He roused up and gave me a good day. I told him a friend had commissioned me to make some inquiries about a cherished companion of his boyhood named Leonidas W. Smiley, Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, the young minister of the gospel, who he had heard was at one time a resident of Angel's Camp. I added that if Mr. Wheeler could tell me anything about this Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, I would feel under many obligations to him. Simon Wheeler backed me into a corner and blockaded me there with his chair and then sat down and reeled off the monotonous narrative which follows this paragraph. He never smiled. He never frowned. He never changed his voice from the gentle flowing key to which he tuned his initial sentence. He never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm. But all through the interminable narrative, there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity, which showed me plainly that, so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter and admired its two heroes as men of transcendent genius and finesse. I let him go on in his own way and never interrupted him once. Reverend Leonidas W. Hmm, Reverend Le... Well... There was a feller here once by the name of Jim Smiley in the winter of 49, or maybe it was the spring of 50, I don't recollect exactly. Somehow, though, what makes me think it was one or the other is because I remember the big flume weren't finished when he first came to the camp. But anyway, he was the curiousest man about always betting on anything that turned up you ever see, and if he could get anybody to bet on the other side. And if he couldn't, he'd change sides. Any way that suited the other man would suit him. Any way just so's he got a bet, he was satisfied. But still, he was lucky, uncommon lucky. He most always come out winner. 
He was always ready and laying for a chance. There couldn't be no solitary thing mentioned, but that feller'd offer to bet on it. And take any side you please, as I was just telling you. If there was a horse race, you'd find him flush, or you'd find him busted at the end of it. If there was a dog fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a cat fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a chicken fight, he'd bet on it. Why, if there was two birds setting on a fence, he would bet you which one would fly first. Or if there was a camp meeting, he would be there regular to bet on Parson Walker, which he judged to be the best exhorter about here, and he was too, and a good man. If he even see a straddlebug start to go anywheres, he would bet on how long it would take him to get to to wherever he was going to. And if you took him up, he would follow that straddlebug to Mexico, but what he would find out where he was bound for and how long he was on the road. Lots of the boys here has seen that Smalley and can tell you about him. Why, it never made no difference to him. He'd bet on anything. The dang this feller. Parson Walker's wife laid very sick once for a good while, and it seemed as if they weren't going to save her. But one morning he came in and Smiley up and asked him how she was, and he said she was considerable better, thanked the Lord for his infinite mercy, and coming up on so smart, with the blessing of Providence, she'd get well yet. And Smiley, before he thought, says, Well, I'll risk two and a half, she don't anyway. Fisher Smiley had a mare. The boys called her the 15-minute nag, but that was only in fun, you know, because, of course, she was faster than that and used to win money on that horse. For all, she was so slow and always had the asthma or the distemper or the consumption or something of that kind. They used to give her two or three hundred yards start and then pass her underway, but always at the fag end of the race, she'd get excited and desperate-like and come cavorting and straddling up and scattering her legs around limber, sometimes in the air and sometimes out to one side amongst the fences, kicking up more dust and raising more racket with her coughing and sneezing and blowing her nose and always fetch up at the stand just about a neck ahead, as near as you could cipher it down. And he had a little small bull pup that to look at him, you'd think he weren't worth a cent, but to sit around and look ornery and lay for a chance to steal something. But as soon as money was up on him, he was a different dog. His underjaw began to stick out like the forecastle of a steamboat, and his teeth would uncover and shine like the furnaces. And a dog might tackle him and bullyrag him and bite him and throw him over his shoulder two or three times, and Andrew Jackson which was the name of the pup, Andrew Jackson would never let on but what he was satisfied and hadn't expected nothing else, and the bets being doubled and doubled on the other side all the time till the money was all up, and then all of a sudden he would grab that other dog just by the tint of his hind leg and freeze to it, not chaw, you understand, but only just grip and hang on till they throwed up the sponge if it was a year. Smiley always come out winner on that pup till he harnessed a dog once that didn't have no hind legs because they'd been sawed off in a circular saw and when the thing had gone along far enough and the money was all up and he'd come to make a snatch for his pet holt 
He see in a minute how he'd been imposed on and how the other dog had him in the door, so to speak, and he peered surprised. And then he looked sorter discouraged like and didn't try no more to win the fight. And so he got shucked out bad. He gave Smalley a look as much as to say his heart was broke and it was his fault for putting up a dog that hadn't no hind legs for him to take hold of which was his main dependence in a fight. And then he limped off a piece and lay down and died. It was a good pup, was that Andrew Jackson, and would have made a name for himself if he'd lived, for the stuff was in him, and he had genius, I know it, because he hadn't no opportunities to speak up, and it don't stand a reason that a dog could make such a fight as he could under them circumstances if he hadn't no talent. It always makes me feel sorry when I think of that last fight of his'n and the way it turned out. Well, Fisher Smiley had rat terriers and chicken cocks and tomcats and all of them kinds of things till you couldn't rest and you couldn't fetch nothing for him to bet on, but he'd match you. He catched a frog one day and took him home and said he calculated to educate him. And so he never done nothing for three months but sat in his backyard and learned that frog to jump. And you bet he did learn him, too. He'd give him a little punch behind, and the next minute you'd see that frog whirling in the air like a donut. See him turn one somerset, or maybe be a couple, if he got a good start, and come down flat-footed and all right, like a cat. He got him up so in the matter of catching flies, and kept him in practice so constant that he'd nail a fly every time as fur as he could see him. Smalley said all a frog wanted was education, and he could do most anything and believe him. Why, I've seen him set Daniel Webster down here on this floor, Daniel Webster was the name of the frog, and sing out, flies, Daniel, flies, and quicker than you could wink, he'd spring straight up and snake a fly off on the counter there and flop down on the floor again as solid as a gob of mud and fall to scratch on the side of his head with his hind foot as indifferent as if he hadn't no idea he'd been doing anything more than any frog might do. You never see a frog so modest and straightforward as he was, for all he was so gifted. And when it come to fair and square jumping on a dead level, he could get over more ground at one straddle than any animal of his breed you ever see. Jumping on a dead level was his strong suit, you understand. And when it come to that, Smiley would ante up money on him as long as he had a red. Smiley was monstrous proud of his frog, and well he might be for fellers that had traveled and had been everywheres, all said he laid over any frog that they ever see. Well, Smiley kept the beast in a little lattice box, and he used to fetch him downtown sometimes and lay for a bet. One day a feller, a stranger in the camp he was, come across him with his box, and says, What might that be you've got in the box? And Smiley says, sorter indifferent-like, It might be a parrot, or it might be a canary, maybe, but it ain't. It's only just a frog. And the feller took it and looked at it careful, and turned it round this way and that, and says, Hmm, so it is. Well, what's he good for? Well, Smiley says, easy and careless. He's good enough for one thing. I should judge. 
He could out-jump any frog in Calaveras County. The feller took the box again and took another long, particular look and gave it back to Smiley and says, very deliberate. Well, he says, I don't see no points about that frog that's any better than any other frog. Maybe you don't, Smiley says. Maybe you understand frogs and maybe you don't understand them. Maybe you've had experience and maybe you ain't only an amateur. As it were. Anyways, I've got my opinion and I'll risk $40 that he can out-jump any frog in Calaveras County. And the feller studied a minute and then says, kinder sad-like, Well, I'm only a stranger here and I ain't got no frog. But if I had a frog, I'd bet you. And then Smiley says, That's all right, that's all right. If you'll hold my box a minute, I'll go and get you a frog. And so the feller took the box and put up his $40 along with Smiley's and sat down to wait. So he sat there a good while, thinking and thinking to himself. And then he got the frog out and prized his mouth open and took a teaspoon and filled him full of quail shot, filled him pretty near up to his chin and set him on the floor. Smiley, he went to the swamp and slopped around in the mud for a long time and finally he catched a frog and fetched him in and gave him to this feller and says, Now, if you're ready, set him alongside of Daniel with his forepaws just even with Daniel's, and I'll give the word. Then he says, One, two, three, get! And him and the feller touched up the frogs from behind, and the new frog hopped off lively. But Daniel give a heave and heisted up his shoulders so like a Frenchman, but it warn't no use. He couldn't budge. He was planted as solid as a church, and he couldn't no more stir than if he was anchored out. Smiley was a good deal surprised, and he was disgusted too, but he didn't have no idea what the matter was, of course. The feller took the money and started away, and when he was going out the door, he sort of jerked his thumb over his shoulder, so at Daniel, and says again, very deliberate, well, he says, I don't see no points about that frog that's any better than any other frog. Smiley, he stood scratching his head and looking down at Daniel for a long time, and at last says, I too wonder what in the nation that frog throwed off for. I wonder if there ain't something the matter with him. He appears to look mighty baggy somehow. And he catched Daniel up by the nap of the neck and hefted him and says, Why, blame my cats if he don't weigh five pounds. He turned him upside down and he belched out a double handful of shot. And then he see how it was, and he was the maddest man. He set the frog down and took out after that feller. But he never catched him. And here Simon Wheeler heard his name called from the front yard and got up to see what was wanted. And turning to me as he moved away, he said, Just sit where you are, stranger, and rest easy. I ain't going to be gone a second. But by your leave, I did not think that a continuation of the history of the enterprising vagabond Jim Smiley would be likely to afford me much information concerning the Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley. And so I started away. At the door, I met the sociable Wheeler returning. He buttonholed me and recommenced. 
Well, Fisher Smiley had a yowler, one-eyed cow that didn't have no tail, only just a short stump like a banana. And, however, lacking both time and inclination, I did not wait to hear about the afflicted cow, but took my leave. We're going to do something new, and we're going to interview each other. I'm going to start by asking Becky a question. So first question is, growing up, what uh, do you remember reading any books? Did somebody read to you? What do you remember about reading and being a kid? Well, despite my advanced age, I remember quite a bit uh, from, my, uh, from my reading beginnings. I suppose um, my love for reading comes from my father, who read to me and my four siblings uh, from a variety of books. I especially remember Black Beauty. He loved horses. Um, but And my father's love came from uh, going to a one-room schoolhouse with his many siblings. Um, in fact, it was called the Carey Schoolhouse. And their teacher uh, read to them, I don't know if it's every afternoon or once a week, but his favorite time was reading time. So he passed down that love of books to me. And um, some of my favorite books from childhood, let's see, my earliest memory is maybe of a book about, I think it was dolls, either girls or, but I think it was dolls from different countries. And one especially, named Katrina, had long blonde braids, and she was from Russia. I thought she was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Um, other books from back then, uh, I spent a lot of time in our library, uh, which was close enough to walk to. Uh, down in the corner, well, the, the children's section was downstairs, and I remember the corner where the animal books were. There was a series, and I believe the animals talked. Um, but I can remember where they were in that basement corner, and I read every single one of those. And also, you know, of course, the Black Beauty books and My Friend Flicka, uh, that series. And oh, other books like The Borrowers and The Boxcar Kids. I just loved them. The borrowers were little people that lived under the floor in the boxcar kids, were orphans that lived in a boxcar. Um, oh, and of course, I read Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have couldn't have skipped that one. But eventually, I graduated to the upstairs, uh, to the big kids' books, and read all the Nancy Drew books, all the Cherry Ames nurse books. I think there was another girls' series. I don't remember the name. But, of course, when my brothers brought home the Hardy Boys books and the Tom Swift books, I read all of those. Um, the Little Women series was Family Robinson, uh, Lorna Doon. Oh, so many good books. Um, but I have to say that probably Heidi was my favorite. And Heidi um, gave me... Uh, you know, empathy for orphans, kind of like the boxcar kids. 
but also um, I just love the description of the uh, fresh air uh, living on the mountain with their grandpa and uh, you know eating goat cheese and fresh bread and and uh, climbing up the mountainside with her friend the sheep herder or the goat herder I guess it was um, in the in the sunshine and so that gave me a love for mountains and of course I already love the Wyoming mountains but I also um, developed that um, what's the word one of those life goals to someday see the Swiss Alps haven't been there yet but that's still on the list so I think I think that's enough about me how about you Steve what were your favorite books from childhood well, you put that in a plural, and I think there was only—I <laughs> think there was only one book, and I think the only one I remember is Charlie Cockatoo visits the insect world. <laughs> I'm not sure I even finished it. Maybe, maybe with a title like that, that's why. Uh, and that's it. Now, if you want to know about, um, you know, the Three Stooges. Or, uh, or Batman and Robin. Uh, you know, I watched those. That was every afternoon. So I spent more time looking at the screen than at, than at uh, books. But somewhere along the line, you developed a love for reading, right? I did, yeah. A lot more reading now. And uh, I don't know how that, where that came from. I must have read a good book somewhere, something better than Charlie Cockatoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a feeling that uh, <laughs> your TV world and my book world may have something to, to do with the fact that you grew up in the big city of Oakland, and I grew up in the small town, Wyoming, where um, we had one television uh, station that came from Nebraska— and I don't remember that our TV could even always get it. So, plus my mother really wasn't anxious for us to watch television. So uh, we learned to love to read, and um, I'm still very fond of libraries to this day. And you know, I just thought I'm. Um, I didn't watch those TV shows. I didn't watch them at our house. I'd go around about halfway around the block to uh, Butch Gebhardt's house. And Butch and his brother, whose name I don't remember, and maybe a couple of us uh, would join them. Anyway, we watched them at his house, and maybe it's because my mother had more sense than to have our TV on. (laughs) (laughs) No books, though. (laughs) Well, bless our mothers. (laughs) So we're coming to the end of this podcast, and I'm wondering if you've been thinking about our quiz. The question is, um, who do you think said, a good novel tells us the truth about its hero, but a bad novel tells us the truth about its author? Well, the answer is G.K. Chesterton. In case you haven't heard of G.K. Chesterton, He lived from 1874 to 1936 and was an English writer, lay theologian, poet, philosopher, dramatist, journalist, 
orator, literary and art critic, biographer, and a Christian apologist. And he never slept. (laughs) Yeah, he was, well, obviously he was a genius and had quite a productive um, career in many fields. Uh, And he also had a really crazy hairdo. Check him out on Wikipedia. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. (laughs) See you next time. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.